Um, I'm trying to think if there's one over all of the others. Um, and it's hard because everything was made from a particular place, you know, emotionally. Um, yes. And, and everything has a, a connection that I can draw from. Um, so that would be hard to say one stands out. One thing that one that is coming to mind, um, just because of its relevance and it being recent, I did one that does not look at all like anything else that I, I do right now. It was called, I named it um, The Martyr, and it was about um, teachers, being a teacher in the midst of the pandemic especially, and um, feeling like, you know, you're just expected to be all giving, you know, sacrifice all. <laughs> And um, I, I looked at it through the lens of, particularly because teaching is such a, um, a female occupation, so many women in that occupation. So um, that was one that I did, and it was done out of a bit of anguish. So I think that was probably why I feel it so, you know, intensely. Um, yeah. But, yeah, all of them have a place. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's on your website, is it? That one or where? Is that? No, it's, I don't. Okay. I, it, it, it was at one point, but I think um, I archived it. It was sold, and I, I have to look at my inventory to see where it sold. But it sold somewhere, uh, like shortly after I, I painted it. Um, I think it was a, a collector in the United States. But um, but yeah, it doesn't. It does not look anything like. Um, I'm sure it was somewhere down on my social media. <laughs> but it doesn't look yeah, anything like. Yeah, can you, can like you send that. me a picture of it, and I'll um, I'll put it in the show notes so people okay. can see it. Well, I didn't know if that heavy of a question, man. I would have picked something like. Too late. I got another one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very good. Um. Do you have a big art dream you'd like to achieve before you die? Hmm. I'm trying to think of how to articulate it. Cause, because I know the vision I have for myself as an artist. Um, I want my work to be in museums, prominent museums. I want my work to resonate with large groups of people. I want my work, um, I want to travel with my work and talk about my work, and I want to do great things with it. Um, and I think that I'm on the path to doing that, and work, will work to continue to grow. Um, I think if I were to kind of phrase it one way, I guess I want my work to have great impact. Um, and I want to leave a legacy with that. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. We're at the last question. Oh, no. Okay. It's a lot of weight on this one. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For copy of the ones, we're heavy. <laughs> um. Right, so I ask this to everyone who comes on the podcast, if there's one thing you could pass on to future generations, what would it be? 
to be true to yourself and to be authentic and just do your best. That's all you can do. Nothing more than your best, nothing less than your best, just do your best. Very good. Okay, that was that was pretty good. That was easy. <laughs> yeah, but did they have the weight of the last question though? <laughs> I think it did. It is. Okay, good. Good. <laughs> All right, where can people find you on the interweb? Um, so my website is Ayana Roth, A-Y-A-N-A-R-O-S-S dot com. Um, social media, Ayana Roth Art, both on Instagram and Facebook. And that's the only two social media outlets I can handle right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're not doing TikTok now. <laughs> no, no, you know... My daughter wants me to. She's like, you need to make a TikTok video. I'm like, I'm not making a TikTok no, video. No, you don't. It's not going to happen. You, you don't. You don't need to make No one needs to make a TikTok video. <laughs> I'm not doing it. Nope. Yeah. Unless you're good nope. at dancing, you know, or something nope. like that. But I think for artists, I can't see it myself. But maybe I'm, nope. like, that's my limitation. Nope. Um, all right. Uh, yeah. When I when you Google your name, Ayanna mm-hmm. Ross, you're all over it. You're like page one and two. And oh, really? Half. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I like to do that to see what else, you know, if there's some sort of Russian pole vault or called Diana Ross or something like that. But no, you're all over it at the moment. It's great. That is good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is good. Um, okay. Well, look, I think your art is brilliant. Congratulations again for winning. Thank you. Um, uh, it's great that you won. I can see that in the, um, I mean, I've sort of, like, a, like the better prize, uh, prizes generally are bittersweet because, you know, everyone apl- everyone who applies is a winner, I think, you know, and yeah. then uh, and all the, fi- the finalists, the honorable mentions, they're all brilliant, but then someone has to win it, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm glad that you won, and it's great that you won, and congratulations. Thank you so much. Um, I think your art is great. I think it's got good on lots of levels um, because it's got, like, I think the pattern thing is, I think it's a great way, mechanism of taking something that, you know, could, like, if without the patterns, um, the paintings would be a different thing. They yeah. would be like almost like a representation of a time in the past or, you know, pre- the present moment or whatever. But what the patterns do is they abstract it a little bit um, and they lift it out a, a little bit and go and, and basically say, this is about a time, but it's also timeless. You know, it's about a person, but it's about everybody. You know, they... To me, anyway, that's the kind of effect visually that they have. So it sort of jams the gears in my brain (laughs) in a good way of like, I can't just take this image and go, oh, this is a little girl on a swing or this is a boy. You know, it's like, no, there's something else going here and I have to, it sort of hurts my brain in a good way. (laughs) So there's that going. <laughs> well, I'm glad your brain is hurting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and then the what you were saying about the the actual the figures in the uh, paintings as well, uh, because what comes across to me uh, is everything that you said about they're not um, specifically about the people; they're representative of a bigger theme or a bigger situation or a bigger thing. I get all that, and that's beautiful. But I also get um, that they're all you. I really got that quite strongly looking at all your paintings. It's like, yeah, I can see Anna in all of these. All these characters are also all you as well. And I love that perspective. Lovely. I love that. that. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've never thought of it that way, but I love that you see that, and I, I see that too. Yeah. 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 So that's that's great as well. And they also um you managed to pull off the impossible in that they you sort of know that you're looking at a painting like that is impactful and powerful and that the subject and you know the issues and the what it's about is um, not heavy, but significant. Yeah, that's a better way of saying it. They're significant. They're not yeah. lightweight. They're not lightweight paintings. And yet, they have a lightness to them. Right. And they have a warmth to them. And they have a heart and, and a humanity to them, while at the same time managing to be about significant things, which that's what I mean about you managed to pull off the impossible. Because that's... <laughs> like if I was just going to say, ah, oh, I think today I'll paint a painting that is uh, very significant, but it's also light, and I'd be like, oh, God. <laughs> That's too hard. <laughs> so, you know, I yeah. think, but, you know, I think that comes from doing a little bit and then pulling back. Um, mm. I did a piece that is archived <laughs> um, of, uh, it was, again, around the time of one of the shootings. It might have been around the time I posted that Facebook post that you mentioned. And it's a picture of my son that I painted. Um, he has an American flag hanging in his room, and he was so excited to hang it up. Um, so I painted this picture of him sitting in front of his flag that he has in there. And it was, it was after a shooting. Um... And I'm trying, I'm blanking on when, when exactly it was, I'm trying to set a connection there. But anyway, I, I started out, I put bullet holes in the flag, and I could not look at it. <laughs> I can't. That's too much. So I painted mm -hmm. them out. So my mom asked me about it sometime later. She's like, oh, send us that picture that you painted. She was showing it to someone. She said, what happened to it? I said, I could not leave the bullet holes in there. It's too much. Um, so some of it is based on my sensibility, like what can I, it's some, some things you can say and it'd be enough being said to start a conversation without going so far as to give the viewer all the thoughts and all the feelings as opposed to yeah. letting them feel their own feelings and have their own thoughts, if that makes sense. So I appreciate you saying that and I, I think that that has been part of the process of um, figuring out a decent balance, if there ever is one. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So, yeah, your work is brilliant. And uh, it's been lovely chatting to you in a bit more depth uh, and sort of hearing where you're coming from in uh, behind that. And you, I know you've been sort of saying you've taken the scenic route and everything, but you come across, across to me as a very serious professional artist. Like you, it's not like, yay, I won the Bennett Prize, now I can really get serious. It's like you come across as like you, <laughs> whether you won the Bennett Prize or not, this is what's going to happen. going to happen. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, it's great. It's really good. Um, and yeah, it's just been lovely chatting with you. Um, so I keep in touch with everybody. So I'm sure we we'll keep in touch for Zoom, tea, or coffee, or you know, <laughs> vodka coffee. <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll say goodbye for now. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a dream come true. It really has. Oh, great! <laughs> well, it's been my pleasure. It really has. Okay. Bye. Bye. I've never felt this good in my entire life. Make me some spaghetti. Actually, I'd prefer a cup of tea. <laughs> a cup of tea would be lovely. So, yeah, just a little reminder, mainly because every second or third person who becomes a patron has got in touch with me and said, you know what, I've been listening to your podcast for ages, and I didn't become a patron, not because I don't have the money, not because I don't think it's great, I just didn't get around to it. So this is a little friendly reminder that if you'd like to be a patron, you'd like to buy me a cup of tea, go to patreon.com forward slash John Dalton, gently does it, all one word, or follow the link in the show notes to become a patron. I would really appreciate it if you could do that, particularly if you've been meaning to and you just haven't got around to it. It would be great. It would mean a lot to me. All right, thank you. Bye. sure if you could hear me or not okay great now let's let me check a few things yeah brilliant okay good how are you i'm doing great thank you that's good you look like you're ready to land some planes there remember i see the big headphones i always have these yes i've got the headphones <laughs> big headphones very good okay so for someone who's listening i'm talking to julian davis in Asheville, north carolina um and just to give a time context for our conversation, for someone listening in the future, uh, today is Wednesday, the 2nd of September in 2020, uh, here in Ireland where I am. The whole lockdown thing is kind of, um, because the schools opened in the last week, it, that seems to be the focus. <laughs> right. Schools opening and a return to normal suppose, or a wish to return to normal. How are things where you are, Julian? Uh, <clears throat> much the same. Actually, Asheville um, uh, has, still has the schools closed, 
but my son lives at the coast. He's, um, he's just turned 10, and he is doing two days a week at school. Okay. So, yeah, so he's enjoying that actually a lot. He's, he was delighted to get back to school. Right. Yeah. I, I hated school. I would have just loved to have a big lockdown, a big pandemic when I was a kid. But never Me happened. too. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I, when, yeah. I was a, when I was a little boy, I had uh, peritonitis. My appendix burst. and uh, So I was in bed for a few weeks, and I just loved it. I loved yeah. being a sort of invalid <laughs> with a dressing gown and you know being brought cups of tea. and Yeah. I know. Yeah, I totally can relate. I didn't have peritonitis, but I did have. I was in hospital for appendix and that kind of thing. And yeah, oh, right. yeah particularly, yeah. I, I don't know. Did you have a big family? Because for me, it was like I had four older siblings. So you know, I didn't get much. I didn't get as much attention as I felt I deserved. Right, right. I have two sisters. Um, so yeah, I think I think got a, I got a decent amount. But, yeah. but, but I have a big big family too. All oh, right. Yeah. So for me, for me being sick was great because I did get mm-hmm. a bit of it. I felt like I was getting the yeah. <laughs> Um Okay, so for someone who's listening who hasn't seen your work, how would you describe it? Uh, let's see. I I sort of have three areas that I work in. I do um, large uh, landscapes that are quite painterly, and I do. Um, Sort of journalistic paintings of the American South, the buildings and uh, places that are sort of vanishing. And then the third side is uh, na- narrative figurative work um, that's based on different uh, histories and folklore. Okay, good. Um, yeah. Um, what, yeah, what are they, yeah, okay. Well, just if someone hasn't seen them, what, what, who, mm, you know, right. what do they like or, you know, <laughs> it's not pop I, art, I you know. Say, yeah. No, no, I hear, absolutely. I'd say they fall into the category of representational painting, definitely. Um, yeah. I think I chose, uh, I, I've always loved representational painting, but I, I chose it because it's the best kind of grammar. Or it covers the largest amount of um, <clears throat> possibilities, you know, it's, uh, so I would say most people would say it's a single style that's a little painterly but pretty realistic. And I found that's the best kind of grammar to use uh, for because it, it can explain each thing I'm painting. You know, I think I, I've always felt I was a sort of frustrated um, abstract painter. I would <laughs> like to get much more abstract, but then I would lose. I wouldn't really be able to do half the things I want to paint. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of painters say that. A lot of figurative painters say yeah. that. Yeah, yes, that's true. Um, okay, well, just to kind of put your sensibilities in context, who are your creative heroes, and are they are they all artists? Uh, gosh, um, I like sort of the eccentric artists a lot. Um, uh, uh, let's see, I like funny. Um, English painters like Edward Burrow, I don't know if you're familiar with him, or Stanley Spencer. Yeah, the names um, are familiar now. Yeah, yeah, very eccentric, eccentric painters, really. I tend to lean towards that. In, in terms of other disciplines, um, I'm very influenced by different filmmakers, and um, yeah, and, and even uh, a lot of uh, 20th century photography. Right. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Well, speaking of photography, um, photographer and well, these are social media questions. We'll just get into them. Right. Um, right. Photographer and cinematographer David Poig in Nashville, who I think made a film about you. Um, That's right. Yeah. Says, I'm curious about your discovery process. If it typically starts with a history, some learned piece of information or story that draws you to a specific place, or if you also go on scouts slash scavenger hunts uh, for the sole purpose of seeking out new subject matter. Thank you, David. Um, Yes, I think it's a bit of both. I certainly, um, uh, I sort of, I do a lot of reading, and uh, I think it was, it was actually a story I picked up uh, from an old book in London that brought me to the South in the first place about Napoleonic exiles in uh, Demopolis, Alabama. In fact, that was the film that he and I worked on. Um, but, uh, yes, that's what I do. I tend to just read, uh, and I'll just get these very strong um, inspirations. You know, uh, I was thinking the other day, I, I picked up a, copy of The Economist magazine, uh, they have a Christmas issue that has um, sort of uh, cultural, historical essays and things like that, and uh, there was a story about an island um, just off the coast of Madagascar uh, where uh, a slave ship wrecked and they left the slaves there. Uh, The captain spent 15 years trying to get back, uh, feeling he should try and rescue the slaves. And um, when he got back, there was, the only people left were um, seven women and a little girl standing in the surf, and they were all dressed in bird feathers. And I thought, my God, I've I've got to paint that. One day, I have to paint that image, (laughs) you know. So that's, that's a lot of my inspiration. It's just something will just pop off the page. And um, what happened to the people? Um, all of them died, except for the, the seven women and the little girl. Right. Uh, they survived somehow. The island is completely flat, uh, just a little bit of scrub. Um, and they, I don't know how they survived. Quite extraordinary. Uh, they, there's some French archaeologists went over there to try and work out how they might have survived. That's amazing. Bizarre. I know. Well, it's that, it's just the image of them standing there, yeah. dressed in feathers, and, and it seems so symbolic. I don't think one needs to, um, uh, you know, think too much about what it symbolises. It's just a fantastic symbol. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but as, as to the other thing, I do drive around a lot, especially in bad weather, <laughs> looking for uh, evocative sites. You know. Um, kind of like a movie scout, uh, and I've done that for thirty years. You know, in the south, just just exploring. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Jimmy Craig Womble in California says, "How do you go about bringing a studio piece to life? As far as the information gathering goes, uh, sketches, photos, planner work, etc." And how do you keep the fire for the piece alive throughout? Right, yeah, Jimmy Craig, yes. He's, he's actually at the coast, uh, the North Carolina coast, but um, when I go there to see my son every month, 
he and I hang out and paint. He's a terrific guy. All right, so he's not in California. Uh, I got that wrong. Today. He's not in California. He's, <laughs> yeah, he's uh, out by the Outer Banks. Fantastic oh, okay. guy. Um, great painter, too. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, so what I do to keep the, the energy, I, I um, on a studio piece is, uh, well, the first thing I do is, is, is start it um, very much like a big abstract drawing. Uh, on canvas, I, I don't tend to do a lot of studies right. or sketches beforehand. Um, I find, for me, that kills the energy. Um, and what I'm trying to do in the painting is show the whole, the history of the painting from start to finish. So um, if I'm working from sketches, it's like scaling something up. Um, yeah, this energy just sort of leaks out. Um, so I want the whole the layers. So I, I start with a kind of um, a strong abstract drawing, um, perhaps even like the abstract expressionists, you know, like a de Kooning or a Motherwell or something. Yeah. Uh, then I try and I set it to one side and sort of surprise myself next time I come in by turning it around and looking at it. Then I try and kind of come in with um, with colour with the same kind of energy, with an abstract energy. Um, and again, then I sort of set it to one side. Um, and then the next the next stage, uh, I try and get lost in the sort of details and the texture of the painting. Um, I like painters like Bonnard and Vuillard and uh, a lot of folk art, you know, that very painstaking detail. Yeah. Uh, so I get very caught up with my sort of nose to the canvas, um, trying, to get, trying to get the feel of the whole painting in, in, in each inch. Uh, and then the last stage is to come back, and what happens when you do all that detail is the painting gets a bit fussy and a bit woolly. So I like the, the last stage is to come in and try and get some of that first energy of a strong abstract piece. So I'll paint large areas over. Um, uh, as an English painter, Frank Auerbach, he said that every painting needs um, needs a damn good kicking to get started. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I I kind of like um, the idea of, if possible, giving the painting a little bit of a kicking as you finish it. You know, you kind of beat it. A <laughs> um, I heard a great story actually. Just. Uh, Magritte, René Magritte, the surrealist, um, he was very uh, bourgeois and also wore suits to paint in. Uh, But when he had visitors, uh, one of the things he would do is um, uh, he'd be very polite, they'd have tea and chat and so on. But as they left, he would kick them up the backside. And he would just kick them up the backside (laughs) and then say nothing. I just close the door. <laughs> and so when I'm finishing a painting, I think, right, just give yeah. it a little kick. I thought I was the only one who kick. did that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder why no one comes to visit anymore. Um, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's a, that's a, that's a that's wild a story. story yeah. 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 It's like, was he, was he part of the Dada movement? Because that sounds like a really Dada story, thing. You know, story, yeah, yeah, I know, I know was, that, well, but... It is a Dada thing, isn't it? Like, uh, like sort of things Hoppador Dali would do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Those guys are crazy. 
wicked. I wish to be that crazy. Um, okay. So you may have covered this, but just in case. So how does the idea like for a painting come to you and how do you record your ideas? You know, like do you make little thumbnails or do you make do you write things down or do you make voice memos or how do you collect the these little grains of inception? Mm. Um, I do write things down. Uh, I don't tend to sort of sketch things out. Um, I have a little, vo a couple of little voice recorders, uh, and since COVID, uh, particularly, I've been going for these huge walks, you know, to get some exercise. So uh, I always carry a voice recorder on me and um, and make notes either for writing or for painting. Yeah. Right. Okay. Do you write as well? I do. I do. Well, yeah. What 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 uh, do you write? <laughs> Um, well, let's see. I used I used to write some poetry and things when I first. I wasted a lot of time actually when I got out of art school thinking I, think I might try poetry as well. Or so. But I. Um, <laughs> so then you I, settled I, for I, a good, you know, solid career of being an artist. <laughs> that's kind of a pro. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's like out of the frying pan into the other frying pan. <laughs> it is exactly. Yeah, that I would. I think poetry um, that has to be the worst paying job. Uh, it has to take the biscuit. My God. Yeah. I take my hat off to those guys. Yeah, um, no, I write, <laughs> Yeah, amazing. Um, I write uh, fiction. So I, I actually have a, a novel being published next next year by a small press in, in uh, Kentucky. Brilliant. Well um, done. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Sorry? It's not easy finishing a book. It is not. No, I don't know if they'll ever finish, really. Um, and I, I did, I've been writing some screenplays recently. So. Oh, brilliant. And, you know, without going into too much detail, what sort of genre is genre is the novel and the screenplays? Are they the same or is it all different? Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, the novel is a, uh, a comedic novel, kind of... Uh, um, it's set in Asheville during the beginning of the Great Recession, and it's about a guy trying to keep his house and full of um, crazy tenants. And uh, it's just the interaction between these Asheville eccentrics. It's kind of an elegy to the Asheville um, I moved to 20 years ago. It's, Asheville's got quite gentrified, and I think it's lost some of its character. So. Um, so that's what the novel's about. Uh, and the screenplay is, uh, the one I've just just completed, is actually connected to a project I'm doing in collaboration with a poet. It's a series of 14 paintings. And it's a, um, it's a slave legend about, um, set in Charleston. Uh, a, there was actually a riot, a, a riot in, uh, shortly after the, Civil War, where the slaves rose up to um, free a, a captured mermaid, and uh, a, a fascinating historian has made this connection between the mermaid and the African water spirit called the Simbi. Right. So I did this. I, I talked to Glenis, um, the poet, and she's done the poems, one for each painting. But I really needed to. Um, in my head, have a really strong story to connect the 14 paintings. Yeah. And 
I'd started writing it down, and then I thought I could see this being a good uh, movie, so um, I decided to just write the screenplay for it. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Is that the only screenplay you've written, or is there, are there others? I wrote one years ago, which was terrible. It's <laughs> <laughs> good. <laughs> uh, it's good to get one done. It was terrible. You know, you move on. <laughs> look, Four Weddings and a Funeral is a good movie. Look, don't knock it, all right? You did a good job. Okay. So, again, you may have touched on this. Do you work from life or photos or a combination of both? Are you a Photoshop sort of get-everything-together artist, or how do you do that stage? Yeah, um, I um, I do. I paint uh, from life sometimes. Um, I play around with that. Sometimes I'll do a large canvas outdoors. I've recently been doing little tiny uh, paintings on site. When I and I format the uh, panel to the size of old snapshot sizes, so it's like I'm. Uh, I, I love some of these eccentric American photographers, and um, and there was a great exhibit of the American snapshot, uh, at, I think at MoMA, some about a decade ago. So I've been doing that. Uh, I also definitely use photographs um, because I like I like subject matter um, either at the very beginning of the day or the very end of the day, or um, in in clement weather, in sort of rain and ice and snow yeah. um, so I'll use definitely uh, I will primarily in the studio use photo reference um, I don't use Photoshop I'm not I'm not good at all with um, technology and I kind of like to um, keep my hand in uh, with drawing from memory so often I'll have a, a scene and then I'll play around with inserting figures that is drawn from imagination. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, I, yeah, I don't want to lose that. I, I sort of lost it for a while. When I first got to art school, I was able to draw out of my head, and after years of painting from life and from photos, I, I started to lose that skill set, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, so I'm trying to get that back. Uh, the mermaid, the mermaid legend paintings are done like medieval paintings, so they're completely out of my head. So that's, that's helping. All right. What did you say the name of the water spirit was again? It's uh, Simbi. Simbi. Oh, yeah. There's a like, there's an Irish legend about a, a seal woman. Like a, yes, a, yes. You know that? And that, that she's called a silky. Silky, that's right. Yeah, yeah. that's quite... Yeah. Oh, you know it? Yeah, okay. So you know it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, quite, it's terrific. Uh, symbol, I think. Uh, the, the symbi is, uh, the thing that's so great is, as, as she's the sort of, to me in, in the screenplay, she's this environmental symbol yeah, because right. the reason they, the slaves rioted is that they believed the symbis, these mermaids, that if they were captured, they would um, beckon a, a hurricane to come mm. from Africa and swamp the, you know, America, uh, mm. the American coast until she was freed. And so uh, she's just a fantastic sort of scary symbol, really, of, of Mother Nature, you know, yeah. retribution. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it was Neil Jordan made a film about the Irish one. Uh, who was in it? Yeah. Colin, Colin Farrell was in it. Do you see that? I think it's uh, some right. funny name, Injun or Injun or something like that. And the, and he. Yeah, I know the one. I don't. I don't think I saw it, but I know. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's pretty good. He kind of focused it on the at the time. There was um, a lot of immigrants coming into Ireland, and there was general kind of not bad, you know, reaction against it. But there was just a, you know, a feeling of, you know, us and them. So he kind of. Mm. The um, woman who played the seal woman, <laughs> uh, yeah, she, yeah, she was like a um, from Eastern Europe or somewhere like that. So it kind uh, of he played it from yeah. that angle of the locals were like, "Who's she? She's a foreigner and all this kind of thing," you know. So yeah, it's yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a nice film. It actually was shot not too far from here, uh, right. from where, I, from where yeah. I live. Yeah, you're, you're in a great spot there. Oh, looks yeah. fantastic from Beautiful. the photo. Oh, amazing. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Um, so, w what kind of substrates do you like to paint on, and why? Uh, I paint um, the little paintings I do on um, uh, wood, just sort of wood panels. And if they're odd sizes, I just cut birch plywood. Um, what I do with that, I like a certain amount of texture, so I um, I prime the panel with two or three coats of gesso, and the last coat I put on really thick, and I um, I have a lot of offcuts of canvas from stretching the larger canvases. So a trick I learned um, years ago was just to take an offcut of canvas and you press it into the wet gesso and then you roll it with a rolling pin and wait about three or four minutes and then peel it off and you have this canvas texture on the panel. That's brilliant. That's a great tip. It works. <laughs> it works. And and you can sand it down to whatever roughness you like. I like it kind of... Yeah, I like it to the sort of t uh, texture of that rough uh, watercolour paper. Right. Yeah. Uh, and my canvases, I use a, um, a really heavy 22-ounce uh, cotton canvas. And it's, it's got, it doesn't have a rough tooth to it. But um, what, what I like about it is it makes you use a lot of paint. I mean, it just, you know, if you use paint thinly, it's, it's going to look appalling. <laughs> so you, you, have to, you have to kind of attack it. And because it's almost as heavy as sailcloth, uh, yeah. it can take an enormous amount of wear and tear. And the, and the best thing, I think, is that it's very hard to, um, with a canvas that's that heavy duty, to get a shiny area by overworking. Right. Um, you know what I mean? So I, I, I remember seeing a show of uh, Whistler's work at the Royal Academy, and he used to have a lot of trouble with legs and faces and things. <laughs> You'd walk past these canvases and uh, the face would be like a, a, a piece of mirror yeah, set right. into the canvas where he just worked it and worked it and worked it. So I love that about the heavy canvas is you can uh, you can go at it again and again and again and not get that effect. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> I'm still um, smiling about your uh, ghetto tip. 
but if I if I want to build up a lot of texture, I will I will use some of that with some uh, lead white replacement and with some marble dust, uh, calcium carbonate, yeah. to make a gluggy paste. And that's I, I, one thing I'd like to try. I saw an amazing uh, little documentary about the possibility that Rembrandt used uh, ground glass in his paintings. All right. Yeah, which is that's a really interesting idea that possibly the light goes into the paint and hits these tiny flecks of glass. Yeah. And bounces back. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my other thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depend on the documentary, but not having seen the documentary, it sounds like slightly gimmicky. Like, oh, that's why it, he was so good. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It, it, it's not. Yeah, it, is, it could be. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. There was a, there's a painter, Thomas Kincaid, if you've ever heard of him. Uh, the, yeah, the uh, name's familiar. He did these very garish paintings for hotels and things, uh, of sort of the Cotswolds lit by candlelight at twilight with lots of flowers. And, yeah. um, but apparently he used uh, road paint for his sunsets. Oh, okay. You know, that, that orange paint they use for road stripes, so that's that was his gimmick. Okay, so it's uh, kind of yeah. slightly, what is it, phosphorescent or, you know, it, yeah, fluorescence, yeah, yeah it lights up. Yeah, mm, that's exactly. Okay. Yeah. That stuff's thick. Don't you have to heat that stuff up? <laughs> like I've seen I, them I put, think, I put yeah, the I signage on the road and it looks hot yeah. when they're putting it down. Yeah, I don't know how he applied it, but he had, he was a huge hit in America up until, I guess, the recession. Um, he was a funny character. He was a very bitter artist. He, uh, he always wants to be recognized by the art world. Oh. Um, uh, I think he died of sclerosis of the liver. <laughs> oh, okay. but, um, yeah. Um, but he, uh, he had all these um, uh, shops everywhere, and he would have these uh, employees called highlight the highlighters, and they would add touches of this road paint. And things. Oh, if you okay. went in, they would dim the lights for you, and you could see that it still <laughs> looked. Yeah. The painting would glow at different yeah, yeah. He made a fortune. He made a fortune. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's about the worst insult I think realist painters could give each other. He made a fortune. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> no, to say to say that that looks kind of like a Thomas Kincaid. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway. Um. Okay. So, just liquid, or is there any other linseed? Blah blah mix or anything. No, like that's really it. That's really it. That's yeah. what I think was okay. Uh, do you have a favourite type of brush you like to use, or make a brush, or palette knife, or you know, that kind of side of things? I use range brushes. I still, uh, I'm kind of thrifty about brushes. I think it's, it's. Let's go back to years of being a starving artist. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm just really thrifty. I always buy what's on. You know, it's like buy, buying. What's in season at the grocery store? I buy, I buy what's on sale at the art shop. So, <laughs> <laughs> I think if I won the lottery or something, I would give Rosemary's brushes or whatever. I'd give them a call first thing. <laughs> okay, they're <laughs> they're actually quite reasonably priced, Rosemary brushes. Are they? Oh, are they, they are. Yeah, 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 they're great. Yeah, I should I should give them a shot. I, I mean, I do use good brushes at the at the end. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> 
take them out of the glass case. I, I, I'm, always, I'm, I'm always trying to. Um, this is why I have problems. Um, uh, I taught a couple of workshops over the years, and I think people are always trying to ascertain my system. Uh, but I'm trying to not have too much of a system, you know. Yeah. I kind of like to yeah. surprise myself. So, um, yeah, I remember using uh, these uh, long um, nylon pointed brushes for a while, and it started, all my paintings started to look kind of blushy and, you know, uh, <laughs> like I was doing a, a master sword fighter or something. <laughs> Swordsman. Um, uh, yeah, so I didn't like that, yeah. So do you... Do you prefer flats or filberts or rounds, or you just use a mix of them all, depending on whatever you need? Uh, I use flat uh, rounds actually a lot. Um, I use uh, flats for uh, more architectural subject matters, just for details at the end. But I try to stick to rounds for everything. Okay. And uh, palette knife at all? Yes, I definitely use palette knife uh, just for random texture like in right. foliage and water, and then for for raised highlights. Kind of, kind of the way Constable used the palette knife in his landscapes, just for a few details at the end. Right. Yeah. Okay, Alan Reed says, some of your stuff looks like it was done with a water-based medium. Is this the result of thin layers of oil paint? Um, Early on, as I say, I, I did paint very thinly. Um, uh, I, I have just used oil paint. I do do watercolors separately. Right. Uh, again, that's another that's another skill I'm trying to re regain. I think watercolors particularly, you've got to keep on top of. Uh, it doesn't seem to be like learning to ride a bicycle. You know, it just it seems to be able to forget how to do watercolor. <laughs> but um, I do, I do. I'm trying to get. Uh, the full range of paint, you know, in, in the can across the canvas. So there may be passages that are just remain just a wash of colour from the very start that don't get covered up. Yeah. But, um, yeah. From the original, like the sort of first. Yeah, from the very first drawing. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um. How do you check yourself as you're going along? You know, like some artists use mirrors, they turn the canvas upside down, or they're taking lots of pictures with their phone, or they'll get their friends in to give them some feedback in inverted commas. <laughs> yes. Um, well, um, I use mirrors uh, particularly for um, a figurative work. Uh, um, uh, but I do find, like a, a lot of your artists, I do find the iPhone invaluable now for being yeah. able to shrink the image. Um, the other thing is just to set it, as I say, face to the wall or set it on the far side of the studio so you can see the basic, uh, how, uh, how it works as an abstract uh, composition. Yeah. You, know. you How big is your studio? Because any of the pictures I've seen of it, it looks... Beautifully large. <laughs> it is big. Uh, it's in an industrial sort of complex. Um, it's actually very reasonable. Very reasonable. It's probably because I don't have a sink in the studio. I have to walk off down the hall to the bathrooms to clean brushes and things. Right. Um, but it is big. Uh, it's probably about um, a thousand square feet. Wow. 
Yeah. But it has uh, 20-foot ceilings, which makes it look huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's very reasonable. Very reasonable. I, yeah, I won't say how much I pay because people in Asheville throw rocks at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what kind of lighting setup do you have? Or what kind of light do you work I, to buy, you know? I've got a couple of north-facing windows, but they're not really as big as I'd like. Um, so I'm sort of up against one window with the two north-facing windows behind. And I um, I kind of use the... Once it's dark in the winter, I'll use the um, just the, the fluorescent lighting that's there. But I'll just use that for drawing out. I won't use that to guess my... to, to, to work out my colours. Right. I'll use that for drawing out canvas. And do you have another light for when you're actually painting in the winter? Um, there's enough light in the ceiling. There's enough light, yeah. From the, from the ceiling, yeah. Okay. Um, okay, Mark Carrick says, please ask them what kind of music they listen to while creating. Their work looks like delicious music. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. I think um, they might have been having, a, you know, being very careful about your name. Not, not sure whether you're... Uh, what yes. gender you identify yes. with. Yeah. Well, I noticed someone thought I was uh, <laughs> female. That, that's coming up. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, that, that happened. Uh, yeah, I um, actually, I, used, I got a couple of reviews early on when I came to America by art, art critics locally. I think I, I got a review in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, by the local art critic, and it was so patronising, and it was like Mr. Rochester, you know, doing Jane Eyre's portfolio, <laughs> and he just he said, you know, this is typical of a young English woman. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, you you, you know, sort of want to hope that he, he he did think you were a, a young English woman, <laughs> because if he if he knew you were an English man, that's even worse. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, it was amazing. Anyway, um, so yes, what do I listen to? Uh, I I kind of listen to a, a lot of music, so I'll start. I, I, def I divide it out. I listen to the classical music to start with, and then uh, uh, some jazz. And um, as, as the day goes on, you know, that middle part, I'm starting to fade. I'll listen to something more energetic. Uh, and I, I used to listen to music that was connected to the paintings, uh, especially like the, 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 folk, the folk ballad series, but um, I don't do that as much. So it's just a whole range of whatever's going to suit the mood, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, like everyone now, I do listen to podcasts and things too. So. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. Including yours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, audiobooks? You an audiobook person? No, I, I can't do audiobooks. Um, no. No. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Uh, Kit Mundy in the UK says Do you recommend art schools or ateliers or neither? Right. That is my sister, Kitty. I was, I was going to say, she, 
I have a yeah. feeling she might be related to you in some way, yeah. Yes, Just yes. So, I, so Kitty had a really uh, bad, a difficult experience with art school. Uh, uh, and I, I still kind of fume about that because my, my, my experience at art school was actually not too bad at all. Um, uh, I, I actually had some good teachers and, if anything, uh, I could have listened to their advice more closely, I think. But <laughs> 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 my problem was I was rejected from a lot of art schools before I got to one, finally. And so I was a bit, I suppose, a bit arrogant, actually. But, uh, so I ignored some good advice. Uh, but on, a, on the other hand, that early rejection was a big help for me. Kitty, on the other hand, did get into one of the art schools I'd applied to. Um, but she'd been selling her work uh, quite successfully and uh, to be honest the art school really knocked all the confidence out of her oh, right. um, you know which it, they basically said you shouldn't be painting and if you are painting you should definitely paint just this etc uh, etc et and, and um, but uh, oh, so, uh, art schools yeah and it happens a lot yeah it happens a lot I would say um Art schools to tell you, one thing that occurs to me is to look at, whether it's an art school or an atelier, to look at what the faculty and the alumni have actually achieved. So if you want to be a teacher, uh, art school is a very good place to go, and you probably will have to do an MFA and the whole thing, and be a, be a, be a, have art teaching as your backup for your life. But if you want to be a practicing painter, I think you need to look at what, as I say, particularly the alumni, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, and I had a, uh, I think that would apply to either ateliers or um, university-based art schools. I think ateliers, if you want to be a portrait painter uh, or a painter of the figure or the still life, an atelier would probably be a good idea. Um, at the university system is obviously the best system if you want, as I say, a career a teaching as a backup. Uh, but it did occur to me that uh, there's a third option for like a young person out of high school, which would be actually to um, to to save your money, not go into debt, and apply that money to taking, uh, say. Um, a workshop every month or six weeks. Yeah. Just just because there's so many great workshops out there. Yep. And if you were to do that and, and do life drawing a couple of times a week and get tons of books out of the library on art and take a sketchbook everywhere, I think uh, I think you could get very skillful at it. Yeah. Uh, um, the workshops particularly are amazing. Yeah, uh, if I if I could go back in time, I think that's what I would have done. Yeah, yeah, and it's only a matter of time before some of the ateliers and some of the, even the art schools figure out about doing uh, recognition of prior learning or a version of that, so that you mm -hmm. can still get the yeah. qualification without having to. Because yeah. it's still, you know, it's the the price of a certificate is not that expensive, but it's still money for them. Do you know what I mean? If they can yes. have a process yeah. where you can bring your work in and get get the qualification. Um, yeah, that's uh... that's a very interesting. They do that, don't they? With um, particularly with writers, universities will give honorary degrees. 
Yeah, well, I used to, because I used to teach uh, craniosacral therapy in Australia and yeah. had a school for it. You know, there, there, there's a different schools of craniosacral, so there has to be a way of, you know, say, being somebody who's, I don't know, been practicing for 10 years, they're, they're not a beginner, you know, so you have to have a, a system where you can assess their, you know, level of competence. You know, and and, yeah. and issue, yeah, yeah. you know, fill in the block. Say, okay, you need to do this bit and this bit, and then you get the the qualification. You know, um, it's not yeah. that you know hard to do. Um, but as you say, with all the workshops and all the different kind of ateliers and ways of learning, and um, and if say you wanted to do teaching or or if the qualification matter to you, that there would be a way mm. where you could get uh, recognition of prior learning. And skill and what yeah. skill level you're at and get get qualified in that way. Because when you were saying about being a teacher, I you know if you wanted to go the university route, I was thinking, God, I wonder how much do art teachers make? Do they make enough to repay the debt to become the art teacher in the first place? <laughs> That's an uh, excellent point. Yeah, uh, not a lot. Not unless uh, I think in America, if you get full tenure, uh, you're you're fine. But if you're a part-time teacher, which uh, that's happening more and more, yeah. and of course the uh, the the pandemic is going to slam all the universities. So I don't know how much money they'll have. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about there, but I know the ones here are pivoting very quickly. <laughs> they're, yeah. You know, they're, they're figuring out how to do um, a lot of their stuff online, like everywhere. But, right. You know, it's really only vocational training, you know, that really suffers where you have to actually be there like an art school or an art college. But um, a lot of universities, it's all chalk and talk, and you can put that online. Yes. It's relatively easy, yes. you know. Um, right. So, artist Jason Rafferty in Georgia says, I love your work. I'm curious to hear what you have to say about what you are looking at for your current influences, whether in painting or other media. Hmm. Yeah. Um, let see. Uh, uh, as I mentioned, um, Jason's just actually started at college, by the way, so he's, he's on that track to uh, use teaching. As a okay. he's, got, he's got a terrific painter. He's got a degree, but he's going back to school to get that backup plan. Um, yeah, I would say, uh, obviously, there's an influence of the, um, the, I mentioned, of the snapshots. So I'm looking at different types of photography at the moment, and how that might influence my paintings. Um, I, I like the, the randomness of, of, the, of the snapshot. You know, I'm doing yeah. a painting at the moment, which is based on, I'm doing actually a series based on uh, the strange dreams people have been having during the COVID thing, and uh, I'm playing with that, the quirkiness you get in, in a snapshot, you know, Rest, like someone's standing there and it looks like the, the building behind them is on the top of their head or yeah, yeah. It's bad placement, stuff like that. Uh, and I'm looking at um, obviously a lot of folk art too uh, because of the mermaid series. Yeah. yeah. And I think I'm looking back... Sorry. No, no, go ahead. No, I'm looking also back at um, medieval painting. And oh, right. icons and things, yeah. Again, as part of that mermaid series, because that's all being painted out of my head. 
Oh, yeah, right, okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I thought you meant you'd obliterate it out of your head with paint, but no, yeah. you didn't. <laughs> no, yeah, right. yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so this, with the photos and the snaps, it sounds like you're sort of uh, in the sort of 50s, 60s, 70s kind of era, era photos, are you? Yeah, Not the exactly. turn of the century, you know, very... Uh, no, that's right. Set up photos, yeah. Yeah, it says... Um, it says all Polaroids and things. And yeah. There's a great, um, yeah, um, there's a great photographer, uh, what's his name? Eggleston, William Eggleston from Memphis, one of the most famous American photographers. He's still just alive. He's a real sort of uh, Hunter S. Thompson okay. eccentric. Uh, but he does terrific color photographs that have that feel. They're almost boring, but they're sort of endlessly fascinating. Very deep colors and terrific, yeah. Very good. Um, okay, the band uh, Charming Disaster, um, they ask you, can you talk about the influence of the Gothic in your work? Right. Um, yeah. But thank you to them. They're, they're a great couple from Brooklyn. I actually hosted a, a show of theirs in my studio last ah, okay. September. It was great. It was great. They, they sing songs um, about got a wonderful sort of music hall feel. Um, gothic songs are terrific um, um, yes I I grew up my dad loved ghost stories uh, uh, Sheridan Lefanu and uh, M.R. James all those people so we, he would um, very often tell us ghost stories when we were in the car you know driving along and uh, uh, he himself was a a novelist who wrote uh, Victorian crime fiction. Okay. So, so definitely a very strong influence on my father. Yeah, that's that's definitely where that comes from. And I thought I think I do I do like very much the Southern Gothic that, um, tradition, uh, but I think it came more from from England. Yeah, from growing up in London and right. listening to all those stories. Yeah. Um, did you watch, uh, have you watched Ripper Street? Immediately when I you haven't know, actually. Say Victorian yeah. crime fiction. I don't think it's yes. fiction. It is a bit yeah. fiction, yeah. Okay, well, yeah. I don't know whether you'd enjoy it or not, but I, I did. I, I fairly binged it. Yeah, is it, is it gruesome? Um, well, I'm pretty sensitive to too much of that. Um, yeah, me too. I'm, it's on the edge, but I was able to keep going. Right. It's on the edge. Okay. It doesn't yeah, yeah. like I had to stop watching Penny Dreadful because that was too much. Yes, that yeah, was way too. too much. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Ripper Street was okay. It's it's, yeah. it's on the edge, but it's okay for me anyway. Yeah, I think I, I really love um, supernatural things. I'm terrible with um, gore, or especially also what my son calls uh, jump scares. Oh yeah. <laughs> The, the sudden shock. <laughs> yeah. Can't deal with that at all. Or, or gruesomeness. Um, so yeah. I like the a, a good ghost story. And I'm a, I'm a bit of a snob about it, too. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I mean... I'm I can't be a snob about, about ghost stories. What does that mean? Well, what I mean is... Uh, I'm just... I'm very... That's to be royal if, I think <laughs> if I think something's good... I, I remember going to see um, the Blair Witch Project. 
and uh, also the others, that one with Nicole Kidman. Yeah. And I, I was I, just like, you know, I, st- I stood up at the end and I was just, you know, applauding. I was just okay. like, that was good. <laughs> that was good. You know, people were looking at me, you know. As <laughs> 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 though so they passed this test. They hadn't resorted to gore or, you know, sudden people leaping out at you or anything like that. Just, <laughs> oh, yeah. okay. So... So, okay, I think I, I think I get it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay, artist uh, Thomas Wharton in West Virginia, a good friend of the podcast. Thanks for the tea, Thomas. Uh, says one of the things that I experience about your work is how absolutely unique it is—an unmistakable vision of the world. The imagery, the palette, the way you combine painting and other media—all of it is strikingly original. It seems to me that you need a certain kind of determination and courage to be so different in relation to most of contemporary realism. How do you maintain your artistic compass? Mm. Uh, thank you, Thomas. Uh, I think, uh, well, in terms of taking risks, uh, what I, I discovered um, early on, I the way I was able to make a, a living is I, was, um, I really loved painting landscapes and honing my craft that way. And I found that those sold, you know. Um, so I, I found something I loved to paint that also sold. But I started cutting my day in half. Uh, so after lunch, I would work on things that was for myself and... Um, that's how I really got started on doing more and more paintings of derelict buildings and things like that and experimenting with different things. So I was able to slowly sort of insert that into my shows at galleries and they, they've always been very supportive. In fact, of all the different uh, avenues I take, which is great. Um, uh, but then about 12 years ago, I started doing work that I thought I would just do to, um, to exhibit in public spaces and, and not have it for sale. Uh, so that's, I switched that, that my day into work that's um, very much for myself, but much more um, challenge, uh, challenging. I suppose uh, people respond to the work, like the, the different narrative series, but very few people want something like that on their wall. Um, so I started approaching museums once I've built up enough, and uh, um, I've just kept adding to that and trying to build new traveling shows. Um, and so I think by maintaining my compass, uh, I think what it is is that each each thing feeds into the other. The landscapes have a kind of existential, slight melancholic feel. Um, uh, and the um, the buildings seem the, the empty buildings and things seem kind of haunted a little, and then the narrative paintings sort of insert stories and figures into those places. Yeah. Um, so they're sort of tying together, and I, I'm just slowly moving forward, finding maybe uh, a new narrative story each year to to add to that. 
Yeah, because yeah. you also do little sculptures and model-y kind of things. And Yes, well, I did do that assemblage, didn't I, for the, the yeah. Visions of Venus show. Yeah. yeah. That's really because, and that's why those things are so great, because when, was it, uh, was it Didi? Uh, Didi yeah. who put the word out? Yeah. yeah so that's yeah. what's really good about the people who, who do that is that it will just inspire an artist out there to just create a single piece of art that just um, uh, so that's that's what I did in that case and then the funny that funny little wood sculpture I made was so that I could uh, I wanted to do some paintings of carvings of the Simbi of the water spirit in the swamps yeah. so I thought the best thing to do was get a piece of cypress wood and, and carve my own simbi so I could see what it might look like yeah. in a painting. Yeah. And on one yeah. of the videos, our little films about you, you, it's like a doll's house and you're putting the little like cameo pictures in there. Did you make the little model as well? or? Oh, yes. But, uh, that's <laughs> I never got to use the doll's house. I, I found it was just, you know, I had this various concepts, a lot of which kind of start and don't go anywhere. Um, and hopefully I don't spend too much time um, you know, getting caught up in that. Uh, but the, the doll's house idea, I was doing these interiors um, and when I went down to Demopolis uh, following that story, there was, I had a show in this wonderful sort of uh, maintained but semi-derelict, I wouldn't say derelict, but untouched 1830s mansion. And what was very bizarre is in an upstairs bedroom, there was a large doll's house that had been um, made to look as though it had gone through a fire. It was completely bizarre. And no one knew why it was there. Wow. <laughs> Just sitting on a table. <laughs> So, just, I, just to be clear, the um, <laughs> the, um, the doll's house wasn't actually accidentally on fire. It had been made to look like it was a, a scale model of a, of a building that had been on fire. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Okay. That, that's not weird at all. <laughs> no, especially in a completely empty, you know, antebellum house, mansion. Um, Oh, you know, yeah, maybe, so just thought, yeah, I'm just saying this now because you prompted me with the Mr. Rochester thing. Maybe they were a uh, Jane Eyre. Is it Jane Eyre where the house goes on fire? Maybe they were the fans. Yes, that's it. Yeah, yeah. It was very weird. I, as I say, the Historical Society had no idea who had put it there or why it was there. Anyway, I came back from that and I thought I could do a series of interiors of doll's houses. You know, uh, I could take pictures inside doll's houses. And so I took a doll's house and I aged it to look like it, had, uh, it was covered in kudzu and uh, kudzu for people who outside the south, but whatever, this is vine that covers, I don't know if you've ever seen it in movies and things, it covers vast amounts of the south. It was, it was brought in as the Japanese vine, it was brought in for soil erosion control uh, and it, it kind of epitomizes the deep south. Yeah, right. so I, I made it look like this house was covered with that. Uh, but again, that, that's a project that uh, didn't go didn't go anywhere. Right. So, 
there's a genre of photography genre of photography that um you know where they take pictures inside or outside of decaying buildings i can't remember the name of it is that do you, mm. did you know what i'm talking about i know the, the genre yeah i don't yeah. know the name though yeah, yeah. Um, is that is that one of the styles of photography that you like? Actually, not particularly. No, um, no. I prefer. Um, yeah, I prefer the slightly more quirky uh, photography, everyday life. Okay. Um, yeah, in America. Yeah. All right. I keep getting. Maybe it's too close of, to my own work. <laughs> I keep thinking of Colin Chillag. You know his work. No, I don't. No. Yeah, he paints. His pictures are of like, um, like a like a photograph, whether it's like um, you know, an eighties husband and wife studio portrait kind of thing. But then he kind yeah. of pushes it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he's quite yeah. an interesting painter. Yeah, I mean, I I do think that's something uh, in ateliers. I, I know people have been to different ateliers. And I think because they're um, they're pretty strong about not using photography as a reference, <laughs> say the least. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I never heard that before. <laughs> no, yeah. Um, no, they're pretty strong on it. So I think, but they, I really think they should have a, every atelier should have a library of great modern photography, 20th century photography, because that's all photographers have got to work with is composition. And yeah. so you can learn so much so quickly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Tony Corbett Jr. in Asheville. So you probably know him as well. Uh, says, does your murder ballad and mermaid series exist in the same, in inverted commas, cinematic universe? Your work is obviously influenced by film, and I wonder if you've given it any thought. I read an article about Quentin Tarantino's films, all existing within a shared universe, uh, and then in brackets, revealed by Easter eggs, character references, and even an admission by the director himself. I love the idea. Uh, could your two most cinematic series exist in the same universe? Um, I think that's starting to happen, yes. I think, um, particularly as I said, with the COVID Dream series, uh, I've actually pulling on it's the paintings I've done. It's like a, uh, so I have um, the character, the, the marchioness, the, the French Napoleonic exile. She's sort of wandering around these. Uh, there's a place that's got hundreds and hundreds of abandoned cars that I've taken photographs there, and she's she's wandering around that in her Napoleonic dress and. Uh, I think so. I think uh, I'm building, starting to intersect these things. I, I had an interesting conversation with Saeed Dai, who yeah. you interviewed last year. Yeah, uh, His wife is my cousin. Charlotte. Okay, Charlotte, yeah. yeah, yeah Got a question yeah. coming up from her. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah um, it was a funny conversation because we were talking about illustration and work, and I had this kind of realisation uh, basically, I've done a lot of explaining, which is something I think that art school, more than ateliers, but art school is particularly about text and huge amounts of explanation about what you're doing. 
And I, that must have sunk in because I felt that um, so my narrative paintings needed all these explanations. Uh, not so much text next to the painting, but I would do these talks and have mu musicians performing and historians and so on. Um, and we were talking about illustration and I realized that you know, illustration is kind of a dirty word, you know, after the Victorian painting, you know, it's, it's not not a thing you, you want to be accused of by the, the big art world. Uh, and I realized that the, the way to stop my work being illustrative is just merely to stop explaining what's going on. <laughs> I don't have to change the painting at all. Just put it on the wall and people say, what the hell is that? You know, what, what, you know and you just say, there you go. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, because when people look at my paintings anyway, I, I, I learned, uh, I had a show in, uh, down in Georgia and it turned out that I, I, put, I printed up sheets explaining each of these old songs and how this painting might relate to that. Uh, what I did, the paintings are modern day settings with these old songs that came from the Scottish borders and uh, through Ulster and that ended up in Appalachians. But uh, I would explain it all and then it turned out people didn't want to read the text at all. They just wanted to sit there and come up with their own story. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, so I think I'm, I'm do, laughing because Julian looks a bit upset yeah. about that. You can't see him if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to read my text. Well, no, initially I thought that's a lot of work, you know. But now I'm thinking it's, it's lets me off the hook. I can just uh, I can start with a very specific oddity from history or folklore, and then just not explain it. Um, and people will say that is so surreal. I have no idea what that means, you know. Um, yeah, we're talking about talking about um, Magritte earlier. Uh, Dali, or all those surrealists behave like lunatics, but um, as someone once said to me, I, I think you're really a surrealist. I just done a painting of a, a like a fire on a wet path in the woods, just a fire in a puddle. And I said, you know, I am not a surrealist. How <laughs> <laughs> oh, very and dare you. I thought, <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, I mean, how dare you? And afterwards I thought, my God, I am a surrealist. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, she nailed it. <laughs> so uh, that's, I, think, I think that idea of fusing the different worlds I've created is, is a great one. Yeah. yeah. Well, you just you reminded me, I don't know, do you know Kyle Staver? She was uh, on the podcast a while yes. ago. You know, all her work is about, you know, pretty much Greek myths. But to look at right. them, you, I mean, if you, she told you, yeah, but, you mm -hmm. know, you don't have to know that to be able to read whatever exactly, you want to read yeah. into them, you know? Exactly, yeah, absolutely. But it sounds like your love of story is <laughs> is what, you know, has driven you to explain, you know? Because, mm -hmm. like, you know, okay. there's, a, there's a great story behind this painting. Now, just let me tell you what it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I tell you what it's been, what's been very useful, which I never realized, but... The, the galleries, as I say, that I show with are very um, open to supporting all the work I do. And they do want a little bit of the weird work. You know. uh, so they want, you know, one or two of the ballads or something, something to relate to these things. And what 
they've discovered is that it really helps to sell the, the landscapes and things that I've done because people come in and normally if you've got a gallery full of landscapes, the poor gallerist is just sitting there yawning. <laughs> There's just nothing to say. You know, landscape painters don't even have titles. You know, when we, when we call up the gallery, they say, what's the title? And, and I say, you know, we also, you know, I, I don't know, what do you think? What do you, think? <laughs> you know, approaching storm, retreating storm, uh, you know, rising, you know, it's just this, everyone's bored of just the titling. So um, the galleries find it incredibly difficult to talk about things like landscapes and still lives and so forth, you know. Um, so what's really good is that they have just one of my narrative paintings. They can tell this whole story. People say, what the hell is that in the back? You know, you know who's that mermaid? Or what's, why's, the, why's that woman got an axe? Yeah. And they can tell the story. And then the person gets all excited and they end up buying a, a small landscape and leaving. So, <laughs> okay. And they, they can hang the landscape on their story on, on the wall and they've always got a story to tell their, their guests. <laughs> yeah. It's a good yeah. trick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, looking at the landscape and go, just out of frame, there's a woman with the axe. <laughs> Let me tell you that story. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, artist Randall Graham says, Julian creates such strong emotion in his paintings. Can you ask how much comfort, uh, conscious effort he thinks through beforehand to get that emotion? Uh, are composition, value, contrast, and color palette choices planned out, or is it more of a feel thing while in the moment of painting? Right. Well, uh, looking at 90% of my work, um, I think it does start with a place. So what I do is, uh, as David Pogue was asking, is this thing of just searching for locations, uh, and I gather that information. I'll, I'll and that's been dangerous on occasion. I will say I've, uh, I've got quite good at uh, um, uh, taking very fast photos. I've been I've been chased off properties with guns and uh, had guns pointed at me. And yeah, it's a little nerve wracking at the start. So I, I'm very good at driving past a spot, coming back, parking, and leaping out, taking photos. <laughs> yeah. So I. <laughs> So basically, that the place sets the tone. Uh, then I will sit on that for a while, and I'll use my computer to crop the photo to the most evocative image, um, and then using that, I'll stretch up the canvas to that size. And then what I tend to do is, is, is sort of block in the landscape or interior or whatever, and then start playing with inserting figures or things like that. Um, and uh, I suppose, as I say, you know, people use Photoshop for that, but I tend to just um, play around with it. Um, yeah. Um, so that sets the mood. The palette, as I say, is I tend to use the same palette and so forth throughout. Uh, what, was the, what was the second part of that question? 
value contrast color palette uh, choices, are they planned out or is it more of a feel thing? And really he's asking about how much comfort, conscious effort uh, you think through beforehand to get the emotion that comes yeah. across in the finished paintings. Yeah, I think I think really it is the location and, and the going back to, to photograph it in the right weather and so on. Um, that's one good thing actually about dangerous locals. <laughs> if it's freezing weather or torrential rain, which is two of my favourite uh, set, you know, weather types, <laughs> uh, that keeps them inside. Okay. I, I once had a guy with he had a big knife. He it was shirtless, redneck sort of guy with a knife and waving his knife around. And luckily, there was torrential rain between us, which kept him on his porch. Uh, but he was not happy about me photographing the derelict motel across from his house. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So. <laughs> okay. How far away was he? He was about uh, 30, 40 feet away. Yeah, so nice throwing distance. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not good at this. I'm not, I don't have this sort of, uh, you know, uh, SAS survival skills <laughs> and I remember just staring at him <laughs> and <laughs> I froze <laughs> and <laughs> I, all I could think was um, uh, there you go that's the Scottish borders in the, fifth, in the 16th century right there <laughs> that's where it all comes from <laughs> and he's cursing and but I backed off quickly. Yeah. Wow. Okay, well, rather you than me. God. I know, I know. I don't do it much anymore until I'm getting too old to run. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, artist Jason Rafty again says, what makes contemporary narrative painting distinctive as an artistic genre today? As in, what is its particular strength when compared to other narrative media? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, of course, I mean, the biggest competitor would be uh, film and television. I mean, it's just huge. But visually, uh, I mean, cinema started by being inspired by Victorian painting and, and those compositions for now, it's extremely difficult. I would say um, that what what painting has in, against the effectiveness of those uh, mediums is, um, is the nature of it being a single still image uh, and that if it's painterly, and I think that's key, I think it does need to be, it doesn't want to be too photographic, you know. If it's, if it's photographic, it'll just be read as a, a single, still, instantaneous image, like a photo. But if it's a little more painterly, uh, you can hold the viewer's attention, um, and they can see that the history of the painting uh, you know, while they're just standing there observing the, the canvas in silence, uh, and you can play around slightly with how much they how they discover the story. Um, that's one of the, one of my biggest influences early on was um, 
the French painter Bonnard, and that's because he had a really great trick of putting things in and out of focus in the composition, so you couldn't see the painting all at once. You'd see the open window first, and the figure then, and it might take a, a, you know five minutes of looking at it to notice there's a cat walking into the room or whatever. Um, yeah. uh, so I, I've been trying to bring aspects of that into a more type, a more representational painting. Um, so I think with, with narrative painting, you've got to distill, uh, obviously you have to distill a whole story into a single moment. Um, and that's, that's, I think, uh, in a way, what makes narrative painting exciting are the, are the limitations of paint. You know, um, what moment do you choose to show, and how can you delay the viewer's um, comprehension of it? How long can you keep them looking at the painting? Yeah. yeah. But it's a challenge, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And I think as well, it's kind of like what you were saying. You know, like you have your, you have your, um, you know what the story of the painting is, and you know what you were trying to represent, but I think really good figurative art is big enough um, to include the what the painter was trying to do, but it also, there's enough space there for the viewer to put their own story onto it. And mm -hmm. to, that, it, that not all the story is told, because if all the story exactly. is told, absolutely, absolutely. then you know, the person can't go back to it. But, like, I think really exactly. good, good figurative painting, there's there's an enigmatic quality to it that keeps the, you know, the story un, unresolved in some way. Yeah. That the person's, the viewer's mind is continually trying to figure it out, you know. And I think that's one yeah. of the things that, that figurative painting has over cinema. Because yeah. cinema is designed, you know, certainly Hollywood cinema, you know, it's, it's formulaic. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it will resolve at the end. Yes. And then yes. that's that's that's, that's you. Yeah. You as the viewer are kind of expelled from the story. At the end, of when, yes. the, when the credits are rolling, your yes. all your questions yeah. are answered. You're kicked off the back. Renee <laughs> <laughs> yeah. agrees. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's very very true. Yeah, totally. Uh, the mystery is really important. Um, I was just listening to a thing about Stanley Kubrick, who is a huge inspiration to me and uh, that's an amazing thing about 2000, 2001 Space Odyssey is that it really is enigmatic yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they really made a point of yeah. not making that easy yeah yeah. yeah. He, he would never get that made now <laughs> not no, even with God. Netflix or something God, like no. that no. No. it's amazing that he got it made even then <laughs> you know it's only yeah. that he'd, he'd been yeah. so successful you know yeah, but if that had been audience tested <laughs> before oh, it was yeah. released, <laughs> we wouldn't have never. Yeah. We would have never seen it. <laughs> we would never seen the light of day. Or the... Yeah, yeah, basic. Um, okay, the band, charming disaster again. Would say, would love to hear how you think about narrative uh, in a usually non-sequential art form. Hmm. Well, I think that, again, that relates to what we were just saying. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's deciding what image to show. Uh, so I think 
when I did the um, the painting, the, the, the Appalachian Ballad paintings, initially, uh, I think I disappointed the local, we have a fantastic local community here of folk singers and traditional ballad singers who've been around the world and they sing these uh, Scottish and Irish ballads uh, that came over completely intact, you know, and, survived in Appalachian Mountains and that they will sing these things exactly as they were sung, you know, by their great 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 grandparents or whatever. Um, but when I first approached them with this idea, I think they were quite disappointed because they wanted very much an illustration of what they saw. You know, they yeah. wanted a person in costume, you know, they wanted it to look like seventeen eighty or eighteen twenty or whatever. Uh, and instead, I was setting it in the contemporary south in trailer parks and, you know, um, just abandoned buildings and things like that. And uh, so, yes, what I, um, in answer to that question, the way I do it is to try and emphasize the mystery and come up with a, a, a sort of uh, a symbolic uh, a painting to me that symbolizes the mood of the song. Uh, uh, most of the paintings try to emphasize a kind of fatalism uh, that runs through all those songs, which I find really fascinating. You know, it's the fatalism of people who you know, live in very hard times and quite feel trapped in their environment and you know, violent sort of places. Um, so I'm trying to capture that sense of being stuck uh, yeah. Um, yes. Does that, does that answer that? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, because well, my read on the question is because what they're asking is that you know narrative is a story, you know, beginning, middle, mm -hmm. and end, and paintings are one frame, so they're not in sequence. So mm -hmm. how do you think about um, making a painting that is telling a story but you can you, you can't have a beginning a middle and an end or you can't have it in sequence because it's just one frame it's like it's like a comic book that just contains one picture <laughs> right <laughs> right well like I say with the, with the single paintings uh, that what I try and do is, is, is some key moment that might suggest a past and a uh, future. Uh, I did. I have done a number of triptychs. Uh, now that definitely somewhat answers that that problem because you have yeah. three paintings that are at least like a comic book with three panels. Um, so yeah, um, that that's one way I answer that. Uh, yeah. But again, uh, I'm. I'm not trying to show the, the key moments, you know. Um, a lot of these paintings, those paintings are based on murder ballads. I definitely am not going to show the moment of the person being pushed into the river. Or <laughs> yeah. yeah. Invariably happened. <laughs> yeah. But just thinking about it, most, like, screenplay-wise, you know, you have a couple of turning points, and it's usually the last one, the big one, where the main character undergoes the big transformation mm -hmm. and um, I think a lot of 
narrative paintings, they go for that moment, you know, yes. the, the moment of transformation or, you know, even if that's a person yeah. sitting down looking into the water, you can, yes. if, if it's good, you can tell that there's a lot going on inside the person. That's right. Well, I, that's a good point, yeah. So, if I've got a couple of paintings uh, where a person is looking. I think you posted one of those. That is that moment of recognition and simultaneous fatalism. They're, they're looking and they're like, oh, I get it. He's really upset that I'm not going to marry him. He's going to kill me. He's, so that, that, he's moment, that upset. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's that upset. <laughs> this is unfortunate. Uh, I have a, a big triptych, a huge triptych um, that has uh, the figure that you posted on, on the left looking down off the bridge and the right panel is her looking at this man who's in the water, kind of like a baptismal figure. Right. Yeah. And that actually was based on, I, I did a, after I'd done the start of the ballads, I decided to uh, contact the local shelter, domestic abuse shelter and I did a number of interviews. It was a sort of fundraiser for them. Uh, but I interviewed some of the victims uh, yeah. with the idea I would do paintings based, you know, not specifically, but take their experiences as, as a starting point. And yeah. that, that second panel is that moment of, of people who are drawn to a certain type of... Um, oversensitive male figure uh, and that moment of recognizing uh, where, where it's heading and stepping back, back from it. Yeah. yeah. But it's, this is, again, like Jason was uh, asking, that's, that's the huge challenge of narrative painting, which I guess keeps it permanently interesting to us painters. Is yeah. How do you do it? In the face of how do you in the face of cinema and especially I mean, TV now, TV is the writing on TV is so good. But, yeah. yeah, I think it's different though now. I think I, I could be wrong now, but it feels like we've come through it. The, you know, mm. because <clears throat> people are still painting; they're still, you know, yeah. even more interested in figurative painting. Um, yeah, of course, I'm in my little figurative painting echo chamber, so I'm going to feel like that, but. I think there is more interest in uh, the craft of painting for sure, but then, but then figurative work as well and telling stories in painting. Mm -hmm. I think absolutely, so, yeah. Yeah, so I think I think that's a, yeah. Go on. I think there's a desperate need for storytelling, and I think I'm actually very hopeful, for, as you say, for painting, because I think there will be uh, a need for people to have something tangible in the future. I think people, this thing of everything being virtual, I think that the, the qualities of within a painting, I think, of being made and crafted uh, will actually become more and more attractive to people. Um, yeah. That yeah. storytelling thing is fascinating, too. That the need for story. There's a, there's a great, uh, have you seen the, the um, uh, there's a little segment on YouTube of two African-American guys who listen to music for the first time, these teenagers, and they're listening to Dolly Parton for the first time, <laughs> singing, singing I, Jolene. I've seen it go by. I haven't listened to it, though. Oh, it's fantastic. And they just love it. 
And it's because of the story. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. yeah they yeah. just say, oh, this, is, this song is fantastic. <laughs> it's yeah. telling a story. Yeah. And they really sympathize with that. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> with, with the character in the song. Yeah. <laughs> Terrific. But I'm, like, I'm, just as you're talking there, I'm thinking of painters like, say, Zoe Frank, um, Felicia Forte, you know, who are, on the surface, you know, you wouldn't, they don't, don't jump out of you, jump out at you as narrative painters, but I find their their paintings are very narrative mm -hmm. and very, Absolutely. you know, they kind of highlight what where it's going and what's really interesting about painting as a storytelling medium in its own right, separate to, not compared to cinema, you know, which is a very different kind of storytelling uh, yeah. thing, you know? So I think yeah, absolutely. Right feature there. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think so. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, God, I'm really enjoying this podcast. I've listened to a few now and they're brilliant. And there's so many of them. And I've learned so much from listening to them. And you know what? If I met that John Dalton fellow in real life, I'd love to buy him a cup of tea and have a chat with him. I'd love to do that every month if I could. Well, now you can. The tea part, at least, because this podcast runs on cups of tea bought for me by people like you who listen to the podcast and send me the price of a cup of tea once a month through the Patreon account. That's patreon.com forward slash John Dalton, Gently Does It. All one word. And if you're one of those people who already send me cups of tea through Patreon, thanks a million. The tea is lovely, and I really appreciate it. Now, the great thing is that if you can't afford to send me the price of a cup of tea, or you don't want to, that's fine. You still get exactly the same podcast for free. It's sort of an honor system where the people who can afford it and want to pay for the people who can't or don't want to. So it's all lovely. So, if you'd like to send me a cup of tea once a month, you can do that through Patreon. I'd really appreciate it. It makes a huge difference to me. Okay, artist uh, Thomas Wharton again says, Julian, there are many artists that make place an artistic home. Place in inverted commas. Most of these are in the West and focused on the obvious beauty of the landscape. Many are versions of work done by previous generations. You... More than any artist I can think of, have really found a home in a location and have mined it for themes and emotional narratives that literally define it. How did you find your way to connecting to this area in such a personal and intense way? And let's take a minute just to appreciate Thomas's questions. They're very good and he's yeah. very, very appreciative of you. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. He's a great, I've known Thomas on social media for years. Yeah, he's, he's a great painter himself, just, yeah. Yes, he is. Uh, he's just up the road of uh, West Virginia, I think, so I need to go and visit him at some point. Um, yeah, I, I, well, the South in general to me was, um, because my father uh, was a huge fan of folk music in general, and uh, actually he, uh, when he wasn't writing the, the crime fiction, he was a, a barrister in London. But he always wanted to move to America, uh, and uh, so, so I, I got a lot of uh, from very early on. I got a lot of interest in America from him. But it tempted, I made a road trip um, through the South when I was during the time of art school, and that really 
fascinated me in the, the South more than any other part of the States. Uh, but um, I don't know, I think my particular, uh, it was the literature, it was the music, um, um, all, all kinds of things. Uh, but my time, I, I don't know if Thomas was particularly referring to the Appalachians, where, where we both are, but that connection I really made once um, uh, once I sort of rediscovered Appalachian music and, and understood that it had this direct tie to um, my heritage, uh, of, you know, the Scottish part of my family, uh, and even slightly to the, the Irish side, you know. Um, so there was that connection, and, and I was suddenly able to see, uh, connect the history. Um, of those early settlers to the mountains, and that from there I was able to to um, em sort of empathise uh, with that view, um, and then uh, the rest of it has really been the fact I've spent over well over half my life in uh, in, in the American South, so uh, it's become ingrained. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's ingrained. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so if I understand what you're saying, it's like once you made the connection with the earliest early settlers, it was like, oh, these are my people. I'm just I just arrived a little bit later than they did. Yeah, I I just needed to I needed to make a cultural connection. I had it already through the music, um, but that really helped. Uh, uh, for example, I there's some very beautiful parts of the world that a lot of landscape papers would go to, so um, say Hawaii, you know, or Polynesia or something, you know. I would have some trouble connecting culturally to that. And I kind yeah. of need to have a cultural link to feel the landscape. I, I can't just paint it because it's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to explain, but that's basically it. I, uh, one weird thing is my my dad loved uh, the American Southwest. Um, he wanted to move to Santa Fe um, when he was a young man, but um, I couldn't make a connection with that. And then I was approached by a gallery in Santa Fe some years ago, and it was a fantastic. Um, uh, uh, I, I was just say this because it, it'll be interesting to your audience, but uh, I, I've never been approached by a gallery in that way, and it's, it's ruined me forever after. <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> it was so amazing. It was such uh, an incredibly positive experience. I, I got a knock on the door from a FedEx man, and there was a box which had a bottle of wine, some fresh chocolate, all these magazines that they had advertised in, and this letter saying, we want to show your murder ballads. Will you please possibly consider showing with us? <laughs> you know, we, uh, it just went on and on. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. yeah. So as I said, it's ruined me. People say, are you approaching any galleries at the moment? I say, no, I can't, I can't do that. Why, why, why? <laughs> I don't do that anymore. Why, why? I don't do that anymore. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so they they approached me, and I said, absolutely. I said, it might be tricky selling Appalachian murder ballads in Santa Fe, 
but I uh, I decided to pretty much get on a plane immediately and I thought I'd fly to Texas and drive up through there and uh, I did that because I I did some reading and of course it was the Scot the Scottish uh, Scots Irish from well, that's what they say here which drives folklorists crazy but um, <laughs> the Scots I'll just say it because everyone does but the Scots Irish basically moved through down through the Appalachians through Alabama Mississippi and they went out west and uh, because they were this ornery sort of herding culture. Uh, they were exactly the people to settle the, the Southwest and to bump head to head with the Comanches and the Apaches, who are also tough herding cultures. So, uh, so I realised that it was a continual thread, and I was suddenly able to paint West Texas, and okay. uh, you see what I mean. So it suddenly connected me to that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you just need a few <laughs> slightly pissed off paddies, and you're in. <laughs> <laughs> Follow them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Artist Paulina Switzlinsko. Sorry, Paulina. I forgot that right. Don't think I did. Um, I'd like to ask a question about identity. I'm a I am a Polish artist living in Virginia, and my question is, how important is our national and cultural identity in the process of creating art? How cultural identity influences art? Mm. Well, obviously, like I say, I, I, um, there's a part of me that does that need, need that connection to those roots, but I would say overall that... Um, I think that's, that's a great question. I think it, it makes me think of um, uh, my grandfather used to say to me when I said I was going to be an artist. Um, he said, that's great. You know, you're going to be a citizen of the world and you'll speak a universal language. So, um, so in a way, you sort of leave your citizenship behind. You know, that you become part of that world, the world of artists. And it, it doesn't have any borders or anything like that you just I, I could speak to some uh, an artist anywhere in the world and we would immediately be able to speak the same language so uh, yeah I mean I say that and I just told I think I mentioned in an email to you that uh, I'm applying to citizenship so that's kind of ironic <laughs> <laughs> let's hope they're not listening in on this <laughs> when I say I want to be a citizen of the world yeah but, uh, <laughs> That's what they'll put on their reply. Yeah, you can That's be a citizen of the world. Yeah, <laughs> with a little drawing of a house beside it or something. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, okay, that's great. What, just on the off chance, though, because I was kind of reading more um, into uh, Paulina's question about that. There's something about you coming um, from the country and the culture that you came through and then coming to the south and paint and you know painting your perspective of it how those two mm -hmm. come together to form a new thing which is your art um so yeah. you know the combination of culture and um and how it affected you and the way that you saw the south and the 
and, and pavement. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yes, I see your point. Yeah, um, I would say in that case, yeah, uh, that I suppose coming to America or to anywhere, you bring a certain perspective that is that is different. Uh, um, uh, you, and it's something you can apply. So, so if one looks at all the immigrant artists of different types to America, like um, Robert Frank was a Hungarian photographer, and Billy Wilder was uh, Russian, uh, all those abstract expressionists, you can bring a certain quality which you can then fuse with your American experience. So yes, that's true. I would say my uh, the colour of my paintings and the tone is very Northern European. Um, so yeah, I mean, I tend to that's affected uh, my take on the American landscape. You know, yeah, um, yeah, and, and the tone, the tone of it is is more English, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's funny you say that because. Whenever I see your paintings, I have to remind myself that it's very hot where they are. Like yes. this is a picture. This is a picture of people who are probably sweating. I have to remind myself yes. of that. Um, yes. And that's yes. I yes. hadn't really thought about that until you said that. I'd, I'd say it's probably yeah. color palette or something like you know, a European, a Northern European kind yeah. of thing where it's not yeah. that hot, you know. So I'm trying to think with the Polish tradition. Uh, I'm not. I know that the Polish uh, were amazing, particularly poster design, incredible schools of poster design and stuff in the 70s and 80s. But I'm not too familiar with my Polish artists, actually. So, uh, but, uh, but I think it's something for her to bring to America, to bring to her experience. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. to merge the two. Yeah. Right. Um, artist Fred Watson says, I've always liked your paintings where you find watchable Im imagery in situations that look run down or abandoned. I've wondered if there's a backstory there in your personal experience. Hmm. Yeah. Good question, too. Um, uh, well, one thing is when I was um, growing up, uh, my the one, my parents moved around quite a bit, but the one place that stayed the same through my childhood was my grandparents' home. Uh, they ran a small um, uh, boarding school for like 50, 50 boys up until uh, the year I was born. Um, I was actually born, actually, in, in, in one of the dormitories. Uh, as, as my parents were visiting. My mother was heavily pregnant, and I was born there. So I was born in this tiny village in Somerset. Um, but that place, to me, was always sort of home, and I'd spend a lot of time in the summers there. And my grandparents couldn't afford to keep the whole place up. So the part that had the dormitories and the classrooms uh, basically fell into sort of rack and ruin. Right. Uh, they just locked the door to, to parts of the house. And they just, over, you know, 30, 40 years, they just uh, collapsed. And, and the desks were still in the class, you know, the dormitories were the same. The, the teachers, you know, capes and mortarboards and sort of Harry Potter stuff, 
still out there. <laughs> so, when, so when I started drawing and painting, actually, even before art school, that was one of the first things I started painting, uh, was just go into those old, dusty places. So I think that's really key to my interest. I, I also got, um, for an English artist, I got an early introduction to Andrew Wyatt, Okay. Uh, through a, a book that a, a family a friend had, and also Edward Hopper. Um, so I think that's where that's where my interest in the dilapidated South came about. Yeah. yeah God. <laughs> when you were telling your brain yeah. story, I was like, Oh, okay. So you are Harry Potter. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was crazy. Um, you'd, you'd be, we'd be sitting in in a, a dinner or whatever, and you'd hear this, you know, it's just some huge piece of plaster collapsing somewhere off in the house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, we used to have to cover it up because you know, it, was, it was an old building. So the Na- what is it? The National Trust, you know, it's sort of registered. So I used to, when I was old enough, I'd be sent out on the roof, you know, to paint the, sort of glue the windows back on with lots of oil paint. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure it looked okay to the passing uh, preservation people. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Such a good story. All right. National Geographic photographer Charlie Hamilton James says, I'd like to know if you consider your work political considering you live in a time and place, the the South in brackets, where everything is political? And also, how the hell and why did you end up there? Uh, Did you just need a complete change from where and how you were brought up? Which you've kind of answered how you got there, but do you want to address the political side of it? Yes, uh, political side. Um, I I do do occasional political sort of painting, I have a, a double portrait of a, a man and a, a professor here in Asheville, and she helped him get off death row. So I have a double portrait of them at the Greenville Museum, which is, they did this huge, amazing map to prove that he wasn't there at the, where these two women were murdered. So I did a portrait of them sitting in front of this map, and that's because uh, I'm, pretty strongly opposed to the death penalty. Uh, and I've, I think I've done one other political, directed political painting, which was when my son started elementary school, and that was about the Sandy Hook elementary school shootings. Remember those? Yeah. Uh, but otherwise, the politics in my work is more hidden. Um, yeah, I, I think... One thing, one thread that runs through my work um, is a, uh, I, I, uh, my father um, and his, on my father's side, they're all, they're all soldiers, you know, um, but my father wanted to be a soldier and probably should have been, I don't know, but uh, uh, he had a weird double view in that he wanted to be a soldier, but he was very much about, you know, aware of the, the dreadful nature of war. So I think I grew up with this kind of uh, this, uh, disbelief about 
violence in the world, you know. And I think I think a lot of artists have some some question that they ask as children that they never really get over. I think that's a thread for artists. There's, there's something that nags at them. And to me, uh, it is that childhood question of why why do we have violence? You know, why does that exist in the world? You know, it doesn't seem logical. You know, and uh, I think that's probably why um, I was drawn to the American South because it has a certain dysfunctionality and it's, in a way it's remained the most violent part of the United States. You know, so it has a certain higher suicide rate still and, um, you know, that's just, I don't know, it's, it's, um, that's a thread that runs through the, the ballad paintings. Uh, for sure. So it's a subdued sort of political statement. Yeah. You know? Do you think he's right? Like, you live there. Is everything political there? At the moment, it's extremely, uh, extremely political. It's, uh, of course, the, the pandemic has made it just catastrophically worse because it's been now basically, you know, Everyone, I mean, Asheville is uh, quite a, a liberal place, but um, the, the differences are huge. People either believe that the, the, the pandemic has been used by the Democrats to win the election, or, or you know, it's just completely divided. Yeah. Yeah. Um, amazing. And even before the pandemic, was it very political there, like compared to other parts of America? Uh, I think it's. No, I think most of America is politically torn, <laughs> terribly torn. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah All right. Um, Jimmy Craig again says, "I'd like to know if and how your being English affected your view of the South and the subjects you were drawn to initially when you first arrived in America, and how that's changed over the many years you've been in the South, living amongst us." Right. Smiling face yeah. emoji, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a good question. Um, so when I first got here, yes, it would have been that fascination with with the way the South is more untidy than uh, where I grew up, you know, in London and uh, Bath, and you know, it's pretty tidy. English people keep their homes pretty tidy, and, <laughs> even if they're uh, falling apart the on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, that's a sweeping generalization, but I mean... Uh, <laughs> no, but it, it, it's, I found it, like what you're yeah, saying is like, yeah. you know, oh, can yeah. you paint, can you keep that facade going, please? Yeah, <laughs> don't yeah, don't yeah, let exactly. everyone see that it's falling apart on the inside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so at least in my experience, that was the case. Uh, so when I saw the South, I just, I found it amazing, all this... Um, uh, just stuff, you know, let people just set things out on their porch or in their yard. The yards, there's no fences, it's just sort of drifts around. You can, you can read a lot of narrative into the way things are lying around people's homes. The history of their cars, you often get an old house that people let fall down, unlike my grandparents, <laughs> kind of like my grandparents, <laughs> and they'll move into a, a trailer next to it. They'll just leave the house and just slowly collapse next to their. Place, you know, you'll see things like that. And in fact, this is one of the things that uh, Jimmy Craig and I shared, is that 
we both were painters of that kind of Americana, and we used to joke, and, uh, the, the painter I told you, Thomas Kincaid, who did the sort of hotel art, and, yes. you know, the Cotswolds, he, he termed himself the painter of light, that was his trademark, and we would term ourselves the painters of blight, <laughs> so, um, so that was our thing. And so the way I would say, and I, I know Jim would agree, is that uh, what's been depressing is that we've painted this stuff uh, for decades, and there's so realization that all uh, that world that we're painting, that I think we probably started it with this uh, kind of empathy for uh, uh, blue collar workers and people struggling, you know, without much money. But slowly we've realized that at least now, all those people, especially in, in his neck of the woods, all those people uh, are going to vote for Trump. <laughs> and and that's, uh, that's a problem. Like we don't really feel inspired to paint it. <laughs> you know. Yeah. You know, we, yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of, kind of. That must be pretty shocking. Because it is bad. Because. <laughs> 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 yeah. I don't know. You have to have a certain sympathy or empathy. With, you know, if you feel that the people are, disagree with you on every single issue, um, that's, a, that's a problem. But is it not, like, okay, I'm not there, so I don't know, but like, just is that like what you were initially drawn to, which was people in difficult situations who were um, disadvantaged, and but the disadvantage was to do with money but now you're seeing the product of uh, the disadvantage of education and information 